0: Okay, we wanna look at the word of God now and I'm going to talk for quite a while before I actually get into scripture verses. And there's one there's one dominant thought that I want to linger in your in your mind by the end of my message this morning. And this dominant idea that I want to put forward is that when all of time is over and when we're standing in eternity. And every judgment is over and every question has been answered. Everything of this age we're in has been wrapped up and resolved. There's one thing you need to know, that God will come out absolutely clean. What I mean by this is, every action God has ever taken, you will discover is justified and right. Everything God ever did was good and righteous. And so I want to speak this morning about the vindication of God. Sometimes we talk about scriptures where we want vindication. We want uh, God to defend us or speak up for us. You read in Psalms sometimes about uh, David saying, Vindicate me before my enemies. But God has been accused of many things in this generation that we live in. And in the world today, there are many voices that... Basically, question God. And I want to speak a bit about that this morning, the vindication of God. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, as we spend some time listening to your word, I pray that you would challenge our hearts this morning to think rightly about you. God, help us as a people to know who you are and to trust in you and to honor you the way you deserve to be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wondered what life might be like if God wasn't good? I mean as Christians you kind of take it for granted that God is good, but as a kind of just a, a philosophical possibility, the God, who is God, what if that God was never good? What kind of a world would you live in if God wasn't good? Well, some religions have gods that are not good as it is already, we have seen through history that people have been called on by religion to do the most despicable things. In some cases, my favorite example, because it's so far away from us and it's, it's impersonal, is the idea that you would have to throw your child in a volcano or something like that. Gods have demanded sacrifice, child sacrifice in history. I imagine you might despise a God like that if you were a modern Westerner. You would think, wow, that's not very good human rights. So human rights abusing God, throwing children in a volcano. But, I would put it to you, if God really were evil, I doubt we would be good. I don't think we would feel any moral outrage or injustice at all. If God were evil, and if He had made us to some degree out of His own image or in His you know, way, then we would probably be standing by cheering, like bar- barbaric, evil ourselves, most likely we'd probably be cheering along. If God were evil, I don't believe we would have a moral high horse to climb on. In other words, I don't think we would be passing good judgments ourselves because what reference point would you be using for what's right? As it is, people often think that they have the liberty to decide whether they accept God. They stand in a position of self-righteousness and discuss God as if they are weighing him up and deciding if he's good enough to meet their standard. A God who would try to tell me how to live my life, I wouldn't worship such a God, say some people. They say, God would give me freedom, he wouldn't tell me what to do. As if you'd have a choice. I mean, at the end of the day, if God is God, then you don't really have a choice about him if God were evil, he could just come and crush you because he's God. He's more, he would be more powerful and in control than you would just be nothing. So this whole idea that we could actually weigh up God, it's a bit of a defective idea, but people do this all the time. And that's why I want to speak about this this morning. Another example is people saying, a God who doesn't bless same-sex unions. I don't believe in a God like that. I believe in a God of love who just accepts everyone and everything. So I'm basically defining God. I don't believe in your God, are you putting forward this idea? I don't believe in a God like that. Well, C.S. Lewis wrote once, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship Him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. C.S. Lewis's point is, you may say, I don't like this God that you're presenting to me, and I won't worship Him. He doesn't exist to me. Well, that doesn't diminish God's glory anymore. Your refusing to worship Him would not diminish His glory any more than you writing darkness on the wall would put out the sun. See, it's impossible for you to stand in that position and say, because of my thinking, this is how it is. That's, that's just not how it is. Yeah. So you could say, because I'm insane, I write darkness on the wall, but that doesn't make the sun go away. The sun still shines. So no matter what your opinion of God is, it doesn't change who He is. If you are created by God, the very idea that you could pass judgment over God is ridiculous. The righteous basis by which you judge could never exceed the righteous standard of the one who made righteousness even have meaning or value to you. So there are self-righteous people who don't realize that their whole idea of their being right and wrong came from God. And then they use that, their morality, and they put God in the position of, I'm going to judge whether I like this God or not. They wouldn't even be making moral judgments if God were not moral. And surely their morality could not exceed His. In other words, they are the diminutive, smaller, weaker, imperfect thing created by God. So what i'm saying is this god is the only one qualified to judge and he judges rightly nevertheless people are not slow to question god's morality and his integrity one of the first questions someone asks is why does god send people to hell when they meet christianity and its teachings they say how could god of love send people to hell what kind of god is that the subject of hell is not a popular one and certainly it draws anger from many people and most pastors are afraid to preach about hell because it stirs up too much negative connotations and sentiment. So, there's the first question people ask, why does God send people to hell? What kind of God is that? This is exactly the point, good question, we're asking the wrong question, we're asking the wrong question. What we should be asking is, how can God let anyone into heaven? That's the question you should really be asking. If you come to the, the world around you and you look at what we're dealing with, you should be asking how could God let anyone into heaven? Who should be there? You tell me, who should be in heaven? On what terms should they be in heaven? On what basis should they be in heaven? Would it be safe to let me in? I could kill you. (laughs) Maybe not if you're much bigger than me, I don't know, I'm not a big guy. I could steal from you. Should I be in heaven? Should you be in heaven? Would you not perhaps after a thousand years covet something or lust after something or commit some crime? I don't think it would take us a thousand years to commit some crime as we are. I mean, I could leave my front door open, have no dog, and wait a thousand years. Would all my stuff be safe in Madagascar? Will my iPad still be there? Or are there thieves around? How many times can you ride on the bus, forget your phone, and someone brings it back to you? So who from here should be in heaven? My question, do you belong there? Do I belong there? Could you trust me there? Probably not. You know the dark thoughts that go through your mind. You know the sins and the lusts and the perversions and the temptations and the weaknesses and the frailty in yourself. You know the capacity you have to lose it, to lose your temper, to smash something, to say something nasty. Would you want that in heaven? I wouldn't. I don't want you in heaven. I don't want me in heaven. Not if we're like this, you know, like the world. But I'm getting somewhere because we're not actually going to be like that in heaven anyway. But the question is, who should be in heaven? And the question then you should ask God is, how can you let anyone in? Some people think God is selective about who goes to heaven. In the sense that he defines some people as good people. Like maybe uh, hardworking, straight, honest folk. And then he dislikes LGBTQ, etc., people and serial killers, of course. See, that's how some people view God's selection criteria for heaven. He is like very mean because he discriminates against us, but not against these other. He wants these good people, good, honest, straight, white folk. You know, or whatever, if you're like afraid that there's a colonialism aspect to the missionary work on planet Earth. It's all a lot of nonsense. You see, your problem is not that God discriminates against LGBTQ and so on folk, or their supporters. Your problem is not same-sex attraction. Your problem is the same as the school teacher's problem and the bus driver's problem and the lawyer's problem and the 12-year-old sweet and innocent-seeming high school student's problem. It's the same problem that the most respected person on earth has. It's Gandhi's problem, or Nelson Mandela's problem, or Keanu Reeves's problem. I don't know if I should have put a Hollywood Zen guy in that list there with Gandhi and Nelson Mandela. But The problem is the same for everybody, is that God discriminates against us all. We all have exactly the same problem, and here it is, God should not let us into heaven. We don't qualify. We're not perfect. Nobody, but God is perfect. Perfect righteousness does not exist outside of God and unrighteousness can never be present in him So this God who is the God of the Bible is a perfect God he is absolutely holy and righteous and He cannot within himself be a partner to or party with evil So he doesn't actually have any darkness in him the Bible says so the question to ask then is how can God be just and allow anyone into heaven how can he be doing the right thing how can he be just and righteous and allow anyone into heaven let me be doubly clear no one on earth belongs in heaven no one deserves to go to heaven and certainly not in our present state what a mess this world is so here it is then who is responsible for this mess see people look at the earth and they acknowledge you're right Kim Who would would deserve to go to heaven? Who really belongs there? We're all broken. We're all sinful. We're all unrighteous in some way. So how does God even doing the right thing? How can he righteously and justly let a, a guilty person into heaven? Who's responsible for this mess? Certainly if God made everything, then he must in some manner or form be responsible. So has God taken responsibility for the mess he made? That's the question some people ask. You'll meet people and they'll say, well, if this world's such a mess and you say God made it, then he made the mess. Fair enough? Fair enough question. Well, here again, we're gonna see two interesting things. Where the guilt lies and where the responsibility, who takes the responsibility, where the responsibility goes. If you ask the question is god guilty for causing the mess in other words culpable is god the one who is actually sinned or done wrong in causing the mess we're in well the answer is a resounding no no he is not human beings were created with the freedom to make choices of their own we were not made as some automatons or robots we were given will and authority and responsibility in other words when god made adam and eve he gave them Authority and freedom and responsibility. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. So God is without guilt. He is completely righteous. He never intended. He never willed, intended for, nor designed or desired evil. God never did that. But he did see it coming. Even though he saw it coming. People think, well, did he allow it then? And the answer is actually no, he didn't in one sense. He allowed it to happen but he didn't give permission to it or condone it because in Genesis 2 verse 17, he says explicitly to Adam, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So there's what God permitted. Did God permit Adam to sin? No. Like if I say to my child, I don't permit you to eat four kilograms of chocolate and then he ate four kilograms of chocolate, he sinned, not me. He violated my command, and Adam violated God's command. You shall not eat. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God even warns him, because God knows what's coming. So nevertheless, we could argue that God made human beings with such a capacity. So what is his part in taking responsibility for his creation? Well, this is interesting. He showed something unexpected. He revealed himself to be better than any of us. God demonstrated common grace by continuing to provide for creation. In other words, after God created human beings and gave them this freedom, and after Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God, God is guiltless, and they are guilty. So what would you normally do to somebody who has shown themselves to be your enemy? He would be against them. So you could expect rightly that God having looked at Adam's rebellion could have just snuffed out the human race there and then. He could have just ended and said, you guys have disobeyed me, boom, you cease to exist. But in Matthew 5 verse 44 to verse 48, I read, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is describing the nature of God. He says, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son, that's the day, rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, God displays a benevolence, a goodness towards the creation he made, even while that creation is in rebellion against Him, even while somebody hates God, God provides them with a job, feeds them, cares for them. Even while somebody says, "I don't believe in you, God," God doesn't strike them dead. He just—he's just that good. So if someone had done to us what what Adam did to God, or what we have done to God, we would not treat them well. That's why Jesus had to come and say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because we don't, without God's example, who ultimately proves himself to be so good in the spite spite of, in the face of this betrayal. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus now is showing where God's actual standard lies that he is so good that he will actually love his enemies and that was the state of us after we rebelled against God. He cares for his creation even while most of it rebels against him and hates him. Once again, God is vindicated. See, God has proved to be better than any accusation you could bring against Him. You could say, well, God, you made this world, you made the mess it's in. No, He says, well, actually, after you rebelled against me, I keep on sending blessing. And He delays His judgment. In fact, God has withheld bringing judgment against the world, and He still does. And the Bible tells us that He withholds the judgment in the hopes that people will turn to Him and be saved. In other words, he's waiting to give people a chance to actually come in repentance. So in delaying his judgment in us living in the state of a broken world, God is actually showing mercy and grace. He's not prolonging our suffering in some kind of a vindictive, like, I'll leave you there to suffer. He's actually saying, I want you to turn and be rescued. So we are guilty, yet God takes care of us interesting verse in lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22 it says because of the lord's great mercy i'm 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 reading now from the nrv not the esv if it comes up there it will be read differently but it's the same it's just a complicated translation lamentations 3 verse 22 because of the lord's great love we are not consumed for his compassions never fail so the idea is this steadfast love of the lord never ceases that never ceases phrase in the original writings, some of them actually take it as, we don't get extinguished. We don't get destroyed because God is merciful. In other words, the verse is acknowledging that we rightly deserve judgment, but God because He is merciful and loving is actually not destroying us. In fact, you could very um, eloquently paraphrase it like this. I, um, I think maybe this was Matthew Henry that put it this way. As bad as things are, it is because of the Lord's mercies that they are not worse. So people look at the world as a broken place and they want to blame God, but actually He's saving people, He's restraining sin, He's restraining the evil one, He's restraining the darkness so that we can actually survive at all. If it were not for God's mercy, this world would be even worse for you to live in. So even though most people that hate and rebel against God go out and do wicked things, God is still restraining them in His mercy rather than striking them down in His wrath. Once again, God is vindicated as being the better character. Many have asked, if God only does what is right, how is it that evil came into existence? Did God cause this? And they're thinking, if so, He must be guilty of it. Now this is where it gets really like a deep dive. You have to go into thoughts that maybe Scripture doesn't give you enough details because maybe we're just too inadequately mentally cognitive. We're not smart enough. Maybe Scripture can't explain it. But the origin of evil in Scripture is attributed to one moment where Lucifer was an angel and he, it says, iniquity or this kind of rebellion was found in his heart. So at some moment, at some point after God created the angelic realm, Lucifer looked at himself and thought, I want to be like God. I want to receive worship and this unrighteousness, this iniquity, was born in his heart. So the origin of evil was not in God, but it occurred in Satan. And it's inexplicable and probably beyond fathoming. But at some point, that's all scripture really gives us about it. I think it's similar to the reason God doesn't explain how he created in Genesis. Because even a nuclear physicist won't understand. They're still trying to understand the mysteries of the universe. We're just finite beings. We can't get it. Some of it is just too big for us. But if you take this idea, I've many times wondered why. Why did God allow this? And this is... For me quite a revolutionary thought that god would somehow see an end result that is so worth it that he would allow the devil to exist allow sin to come into the world allow us to go through all of this so whatever he sees at the end when i said at the end god will be vindicated nobody will say he did anything wrong it will be seen that his decision to create was absolutely good. It was absolutely the right thing. And his decision, knowing that this creation would have evil come into it through Satan and sin into the world through Adam, God still said, I'm going to do this. And it's still right. This is what boggled my mind. I thought, how could that possibly be? How could that possibly be? And I've asked God over the years, and I I think I only got kind of some understanding of this in the last couple of years of my life. I think I now know why. And it's part of God's plan to reveal Himself to us. It's part of God's plan to share His glorious nature for us to be able to know Him, not just part of Him, but more of Him. He wants us to know deep at the root of God, that He is merciful, that He is forgiving. And you would never, ever know that attribute of God if there was never, ever any evil or sin. If we weren't standing on the wrong side of God, we would never know we could experience His mercy. If we weren't standing in pain sometimes, we would never know how compassionate He is when He comes to heal us. And so God must be so confident that at the end he can redeem and renew and make perfect everything that's broken that we would stand in awe of him but see more of him and say, God, not only are you loving, but you are gracious and kind and merciful. You saved us. You would never know a saving God if you never had to be saved from something. So God, without being culpable of any wrong action, has created a universe that exists to reveal his glory in even more detail than you you would ever see if there had never been evil and sin. That blows my mind, but I'm pretty sure that's why God allowed it. Because in his very nature, he's actually doing something gracious. He's divulging more of himself to us. He's showing us more of who he is. And there's nothing greater that you could ever aspire to in all of eternity than knowing more of who God is because he is the most glorious, most beautiful and most perfect thing. So when it comes to expending your energy and your contemplation, God is the most noble theme. Where does this leave us? Guilty of being partakers of sin, but unworthy recipients of his mercy. Wow. How can we get God's mercy and God still be just when we deserve judgment? How would a sinner be able to enter heaven? The heaven I want to go to is no place for sin. There's no room for sin in the perfect heaven. So God had to look at the state we were in and say, I'm going to make sure that I deal with that too. You can't deal with it, I'll deal with it. Here we get to all these ideas in Paul's epistle to the Romans. i to read from Romans chapter 3, verse 5. If our unrighteousness, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul's talking in a human way. He says, I speak in a human way. He's making a simple argument. He says, by no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my life God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why, do not, why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. In other words, Paul says, don't be ridiculous. So what he's saying now is, if sin has served to reveal God's mercy, then shouldn't we just sin? And he says, don't be dumb. God's right to judge sin. Sin is still wrong. Basically summing it up. What then? Romans 3 verse 9 says, Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. Not one. That's my point. No one deserves to be in heaven. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Some people might say, that's a bit extreme, Paul. I know lots of people who are seeking Well, I've met people who are seeking philosophical enlightenment because they want self-empowerment. They want to be more in control. I've seen people working through other religions where they want to be justified by God through their own deeds. So they want to be able to tell God, you must accept me. They want to control God. That's what religion is doing. So when you're a religious or a moralistic person or a legalistic person, you're effectively still an enemy of God. You're saying, I won't let you rescue me. I'm going to be so good that you have to accept me. That's still a kind of rebellion. So they're not seeking God. They're seeking self-righteousness. They're seeking self-justification. They're seeking moral superiority. Even a left-wing liberal in the United States, their seeking of their God is actually just a moral superiority that they want to be able to stand up above others and judge them. It's as simple as that. It's still self-righteousness. They're not seeking God. They're not seeking true good. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then Paul gets even more brutal. And I'll go on to Romans 3 verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3 verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's an interesting conclusion. Whatever the law speaks, so the law is given to the Jews, to those under the law, but the result is that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So God's work with Israel was to reveal to humanity through that journey ...that the law isn't your means to righteousness... ...but in fact the law just ends up showing you that there's sin inside of you. And that's why the whole world ultimately will be held accountable to God. Romans 3 verse 20... "...for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight... ...since through the law comes knowledge of sin." So that's what we realize... ...is that in the world people operate on that principle... ...that if they could make themselves good enough... By following the right rules, they would be able to prove that they're righteous and they fail every time. Because what happens is the law reveals that they are (laughs) sinful, that they can't not covet at some point in time. Michael Eaton always used to use that, I think it's the ninth commandment or something, as the one that really frustrated the Pharisees because it's the only one that really probes to the inner workings of the heart. You can easily say, I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen anything. You know, all of these things. But you can't easily say, I've never envied. The the Pharisees were really frustrated because it's the one that you don't measure with an external. And the thing that God is always doing is measuring on the inside. He's not looking just at the external behavior. The law can only judge the external. If now, it says in Romans 3 verse 21, Now the righteousness this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here God is vindicated. He does no wrong getting some people into heaven. He makes it possible that... By taking the sin and the guilt off them and putting it on his own son. So God makes a way to take an unholy, unrighteous sinner like you and me into heaven by taking the sin off of us and putting it on Jesus. He makes Jesus sin for us and we are given the righteousness of God. This is the righteousness that comes from heaven. It's not a righteousness that comes from your works. It's not a righteousness provided by upholding the law. It's a righteousness that comes as a gift by faith in Jesus. So when you believe in Jesus, God comes and He says, I'll take your sin off you and put it on Jesus. I'll take Jesus' righteousness and put it on you. Substitutionary atonement. The glorious exchange. My junk is good credit but god is vindicated because he made a way to show mercy to those who believe in jesus he he, he 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 does not waver when it comes to the punishment of sin his judgment on evil is still executed he takes the sin and the and the and the 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 junk puts it on jesus and jesus dies god has now dealt with sin by punishing it as promised he keeps his word he keeps his holiness he keeps his integrity he is just he's righteous he's not allowing sin he's destroying it but rather than destroy you with his with your sin he separated you from your sin put it on jesus and put jesus to death by his blood that's what the blood means it means the life was given up He made a way to show mercy to those who believe in Jesus. He invites all to believe. He put forward and made atonement, put Christ forward and made atonement for the sins of the world. And scripture tells us he will by no means turn anyone away who comes to him. In other words, God is vindicated in that he's opened the door for anyone and everyone to be forgiven and to be given eternal life in his own son so again you find a God who is not sending people to hell but reaching out to save them you see a God who says even though you have all the guilt I'll take it upon myself in Christ Jesus my son and I will give you mercy instead it's unbelievable goodness he pays the price it's, it's unfathomable love, and yet people understand and accuse God of either wrongdoing in his decisions, wrongdoing in his creating, wrongdoing in his dealing with earth today when he still pours out rain on the, on the wicked and the good, and he waits for people to turn to him, and he makes a way for them to be reconciled to him, yet people still choose to reject him. If anyone deserves vindication for His character and His goodness, it's God. We should speak of Him like He is the best character you will ever meet. And when the world says things about God like what kind of a God, we should know our God. He is this good. What I've just explained to you shows you a character which is so far above. In fact, it's not the time for this. I'm not going to go on into the subject but the doctrine of predestination and election shows god's mercy reaches even further we all would have kept our back to god had he not chosen some and given them a gift of faith in fact god's word teaches that people weren't even seeking him he came to seek them and he rescued some why did god send prophets to deaf and blind people. you ever wondered about that? I'm wrapping up now, but just think about Isaiah. God calls him to go and prophesy to his rebellious people who haven't got a new heart to serve God yet. They're just living in their sin and turning against God. God sends a prophet and he says, this is what you should do. You should repent and you should follow me and walk in my ways and I'll bless you and you'll be blessed if you turn, you know, and, and then the prophets are like, who has, who has believed our message? No one. No one has responded. God, you sent me to minister and I preached my heart out and no one received the message. God, this is very inefficient. It's very ineffective, this ministry. I've shared the gospel with people and they just don't respond. Isaiah spent his whole life prophesying and his conclusion was it didn't work. Failed. Why? Why does God send prophets to people who are deaf and blind? Well, what did he do after that? See, no generation is going to be able to say, God, you never warned us. No generation is going to be able to say, God, your message was never heard. The Bible says the message goes out. It goes throughout the earth. uh, The prophets spoke through the generations. People rejected God's word. You see, the reason is God, again, is vindicated. No one will stand in heaven and say, God, I never had a hope or I never had a chance because of you. What did he do after Isaiah? He sent his son to open the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind. You know why Jesus was doing so many hearing and sight miracles? It was a spiritual metaphor for people who are deaf to God and blind to Him. And He was saying, I'm going to allow you to see me. I'm going to allow you to hear my voice. And through Jesus, He then came and He took even the deaf and the blind. And He said, at the end of the day, I'm even curing you of your backsliding. I'm saving you in your sin. Why are still my enemy? So Jesus came. And God will not owe anyone anything. In eternity, when you stand in heaven, you'll gasp at the goodness of God. You'll be amazed to the point. It will take your breath away. You'll say, God, you did everything right. Even when I prayed for my my father who was dying and he didn't get healed and he died, God, I now understand why. That was for your glory. And now see how you were doing what was right in every single moment. God will not owe anyone anything. He won't owe you an explanation and He won't owe you justice or recompense. Because He will have acted justly, completely at that point. And everyone who is supposed to be there will be there. He stands beckoning. He is faultless, loving, loving merciful just and good he offers salvation healing deliverance forgiveness and freedom his judgment is perfect right and just his love and mercy and justice is revealed in jesus won't you stand and i'll pray for us and the band can come up heavenly father as we contemplate how you have dealt with humanity through all of history we are just amazed at your goodness, Lord. Your mercy, your grace, your kindness, your long-suffering, your patience, your endurance. Lord, people would stand and accuse you. But we can see, Lord, that when when all of history is over, you will not owe anyone anything. You will have stood in perfect justice and perfect righteousness and perfect goodness in every action, in every thing you have ever done, God. And so by faith, Lord, we want to worship you as a God who is perfect, a God who is right, a God who is good. Amen. Let's worship Him.